Alright, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the many graces and blessings you have given to us. We ask that you continue to bless us with inspiration as to the meaning of the Gospel of John and how it relates to us today. Because if we read it just as history, that's all it becomes. But what we want really to do is to help us, help it develop a deeper relationship with you. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. A couple things. Because we covered chapters, chapter one, or at least part of it, last week, but we got involved in a lot of extra questions, which took up a little bit more time than I had uh, wanted. Uh, so we've got a lot to cover this week in order to keep our schedule. So let's hold off the questions until towards the end of the session, and then I'm sure there will be time enough uh, but I do want to get really into not only chapters 2 and 3, but a brief review of chapter 1. Uh, because in this gospel, you cannot just take one chapter at a time and sort of forget about it when you move on to the next. You've got to bring forward what you have learned in that chapter and apply it as you go, go along. Uh, there are little hints along the way that will kind of give you a key to what's coming up. And I'll show you that as we go along. Uh, so, the Gospel of John, as I've said before, is very different from the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it is because... John's objective. Now, when I say John, I think I explain that most scholars, uh, Bible scholars, believe that the actual gospel was written by a group of people who were closely related to John uh, as part of his ministry, and not John personally. But when we say John, we're going to mean kind of all of that. It's just easier to talk about it as if it were one person. But really, it isn't. It is a group of people that were so taken by the teachings of the evangelist that they are the ones that wrote this gospel. Uh, and if you've ever thought about it, why is John referred to as the uh, disciple who Jesus loved? If John was writing that, if somebody was writing that today, wouldn't that sound like he was sort of excluding himself or lifting himself above everyone else or implying that Jesus didn't love the other disciples? When you think about it, it sounds a little bit of uh, 
I'm, I'm better than everyone else, you know. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. But it isn't. You see, if it was written by the group of people who thought very highly of John, that would then be a natural thing. And in writings of this time period, people never used their personal name within the writing. That was just a big no-no. In fact, we have uh, one of the Psalms, I forgot the number, and that's not important, but it puzzled me when I would be reading this Psalm, which is in the liturgy of the hours, so you read it every at least once every uh, four weeks or so. It says, this man did something, something, something. And I keep saying, well, who is this man? And then one day, while I'm sort of meditating on this, it came to me that this man is really the writer. And he's referring to himself in sort of the third person, you might say, because of the custom at that time that you never mentioned your personal name within the writing. But let's go on. The chapter of John, outside of the prologue, and we went through that. Uh, the prologue really is John's way of saying that Jesus is God. Jesus is the face of God come to earth. And later on, uh, you'll see where he explains that a little further. But the whole objective of this gospel, right from page 1 through chapter 21, is that Jesus is God. And it will be brought out in many different ways. And we go on in chapter 1 to talk about John the Baptist. Now, the Baptist makes quite a few statements about he is not the Messiah. He is not a prophet. He is only a simple preacher who is trying to bring people to the attention of their sins and requesting or pleading with God for forgiveness. And when Jesus comes along and is baptized by uh, the Baptist, he then the Baptist then points him out as there is the Lamb of God. Follow him. And he encourages his disciples because John developed a number of followers who thought he might be the Messiah, who might be the person that Moses talked about. Remember, we talked about that and I read from the book of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, where God promises to send somebody like Moses to lead the people. And of course, um, the legend that comes from the prophet Elijah talks about somebody who will come before the Messiah. So all of that is sort of in chapter 1. And it's put there to point out that John the Baptist is one of the greatest witnesses to Christ. 
but he is not the Messiah. And the writers of this gospel try to make that very clear. He is not the Messiah, but he is very important. Okay. And then chapter 1 goes on to say uh, a few things about the disciples, the other disciples that Jesus begins to accumulate after John sends a few of his disciples to Jesus. And Jesus then begins his preaching and starts to gather disciples also. And it's important to kind of realize and recognize the fact that in the Gospel of John, you have the disciples coming to him and looking for him. For the, if you recall in there, there are the two disciples that come and sort of follow Jesus and Jesus turns around and says, what are you looking for? And they say, well, where are you staying? Uh, it's obviously late in the evening and so forth. And Jesus said, well, come along and you'll see. But he also says in one of the other Gospels, not this one, but the other Gospels, he'll, he'll say something to the effect, well, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but there is no place for the Son of Man to lay his head. Now, that's an interesting but very odd statement because what's that got to do with the rest of this thing? You know, the point that he's making, and again, this is in one of the other Gospels, but the point that he's making here is that that is a quotation out of Psalm 84. And it means that God doesn't rest in any one place. And that's a point that's going to be made several times in the book or the Gospel of John. And we'll see that before we get through this afternoon or this morning's class. Okay. God does not rest in any one particular place. The Jewish people at this time felt that God was in the temple, and that was very important. The temple was sacred. The Holy of Holies was God's actually the the place where he existed, you might say. But outside the temple, yeah, they didn't think about it. He wasn't there. Or they just gave him no credit for being outside the temple. And this is one of the things that Jesus is going to change. And speaking of changes, there are going to be a lot of changes throughout all of the next several chapters. In fact... You might say that chapters 1, verse 19, through chapter 11, is the book of signs. But it could also be called the book of changes. And these are the changes that Jesus is making uh, to Jewish culture and Jewish thinking, Jewish beliefs, to get them back on track, as we said last week, to then become, again, part of God's plan of salvation. As we also said last week, remember 
they got way off track and didn't accomplish the mission that they were supposed to, the thing that they were then called the chosen people to accomplish, they didn't do that. And Jesus comes to earth then not only for other reasons, but one of his reasons was to get the Jewish people back on track. Unfortunately, that never happened and still hasn't happened until this day. But the door is always open. Always open. You must never uh, think that the Jewish people were cut off and totally forgotten. No, the door is always open for them to come back, but they have to come back through Christ. Okay. Let's go on to chapter 2. It's important that we sort of keep on schedule here. Chapter 2 is rather interesting in a way. We have a very simple story, you might say, of the marriage feast at Cana. Now, a couple points. It talks about Jesus and his mother being there with all, and with his disciples. That would imply that Jesus has already been preaching, teaching, and perhaps uh, performed some miracles in order to gather disciples. Would it not? All right. Well, at least I hope that you are seeing it that way. Okay. Now, the reason I am saying that, I'll explain a little later when we come to the correct or the proper uh, place. Okay. But this is a simple story, all right? Jewish weddings were something that would extend for at least a whole week, sometimes longer. And it was always the responsibility of the groom to provide the wine for the wedding. That was the custom. And, of course, the, the bride's family would always provide everything else, which is sort of the, the general custom that we find today. Uh, but a simple story, except that at one point in time, and we don't know whether this was the first day or the middle or the last day, whatever, uh, Jesus' mother comes to him and says they've run out of wine. And this, of course, would be a tremendous embarrassment to the whole family, and particularly to the groom, if there was no wine uh, in part of, to celebrate with. And Jesus gives his mother what we would say sort of a, an abrupt uh, answer. What has this got to do with me or with you? My hour has not come. And he ha- it hasn't come. This is the beginning, you might say, of his ministry. And it isn't really time. But being a good Jewish boy, you know, and he will then make his mother happy. So he does something unusual. He asks the servants to fill up these large, very large 
um, earthen jugs, you might say, or earthen vessels uh, with water. And when it, they're all filled up, and scholars tell us they could hold anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons of water. They were used for purification of hands and feet because at that time, most people could not afford shoes and therefore it was not unusual to go barefoot virtually all the time. Okay. Now, you didn't, when you came into a, a, a guest's home, it wasn't that you stuck your foot into this uh, big um, earthen jar of water. It was the water was ladled out into a smaller container and you washed hands and feet or the servants would do it for you is the more proper way. So don't get the idea that people were sticking their feet into these jars, okay? Because that would be a little bit unsavory into the next step when that was turned into wine, okay? You get the you get the picture, I'm sure. Okay, all right. So when the servants filled the jars up with water, and there are six of them, six being uh, not one of the sacred numbers, because if it went to seven, uh, that would have a different influence uh, or significance. Okay. So when the <coughs> head servant, you might say, to take some of it to the groom to have him test it. Uh, he finds that it is much better than all the wine that was previously served. And that is sort of the end of the story. Uh, and it kind of leaves you hanging in a way. Well, what does all that mean? Okay. It says, after this, he and his mother and his brothers went down to Camp Pernam and stayed there for only a few days. Okay. Well, that's the end of the story, isn't it? Uh-uh. There's more to it than that. But I want to go on, and then we'll come back. Okay. The next major story in chapter 2 is the cleansing of the temple. Uh, this is a different time period, has no relation to the previous story. And that is unique about John's Gospel. This is not written in chronological order or biographical order. This is not a biography of Jesus. This is a Christology, you might say. That's what most scholars call it, a Christology meaning a study of Christ for a particular reason, all right? So, one of the things I forgot to mention, though, back in chapter 1, there's a little scene here where one disciple brings another to Jesus and then goes on and so forth. Uh, Jesus then sees... Nathaniel under a tree and sort of does a prediction. Nathaniel says, well, how do you know about me? And Jesus says, I saw you under a fig tree. And 
Nathaniel says, well, gee, you must be the son of God, etc. And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, but you will see greater things than these. And that's an important statement that I should have brought forward or brought to your attention a few minutes ago. You will see greater things than these. Now, this miracle of changing the water into wine is one of those greater things. But let us go on for a moment to this cleansing of the temple. In the Gospel of John, there are three um, Passover events, you might say. And that's what tells us or gives us the idea that uh, Jesus had a mission that covered three years or did preaching and teaching, etc., for about three years. Okay, Not an important statement, but that's where it comes from. This cleansing of the temple is a simple story in a way. But at Passover time, the rule was that people had to not only bring a sacrifice of an animal or a bird, but they also had to pay pay the temple tax. And if they were using Roman coinage, Roman money, because remember, this is... uh, a con- uh, conquest of Rome, and Roman money was used for everyday business, they had to change that into Jewish money or temple money before they could fulfill the obligation. They also had to bring, as I said, an animal or a bird for uh, their personal sacrifice. And If you were coming from a long distance, that might have been a little difficult. So they had animals and birds there. That was not the deal. That was not what Jesus was all upset about. But it was that they were making that far more important, the changing of money and the selling of animals and birds was far becoming far more important than what the Passover service was all about. Furthermore, there was another reason that was even more important. One of the changes that Jesus is going to be making. As I said, these whole chapters from 1 through 11 could be called the book of changes as well as the book of signs. Signs is John's way of talking about miracles. He never uses the word miracles. Okay, It's always signs. And the word is is used because what these signs are are something that is pointing to something more important. Let me give you an example. This 
situation here at the temple, the changing or the, the cleansing of the temple, is Jesus' way of saying or that it is more important to bring your mind and your heart to the temple than it is to bring an animal or a bird. The change that is going to be made is that the temple in itself is going to be destroyed and therefore animal sacrifice will no longer be accepted by the Father. And as you see, that actually happened. Once the temple was destroyed, animal sacrifice totally disappeared uh, from all um, sacrifices of the, by the Jewish people. The other thing is, Jesus is trying to get the people to see that worshiping from your mind and your heart in any place is far superior to being just present in the temple or in a church. We have that situation right today. People go to church because it is an obligation and for no other reason. And they may as well stay home because that is not acceptable to God. That is not worship. Mere presence in a church is not worship. And it is strange, uh, puzzling to me, that the church priests do not point that out almost every week. You have a number of people that go to church simply to fulfill an obligation and they could really care less. In fact, I saw somebody <coughs> recently uh, texting a message and looking at a, a smartphone here uh, practically all during Mass. Okay. Now, I, I know that there's another person that carries an iPad or one of those devices and she actually does have the readings of the Mass on that device. And that's fine. I think you'll probably begin to see more of that. But the first person was not doing that. She was just iPad or texting or whatever, you know. Again, church worship comes from the mind and the heart, not just the mere presence. Okay. And that's the kind of change that John is trying to tell the people through this scene. Yes, ma'am, did you have a question? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Well, yes, there are opportunities, but not while you're there. Okay. Another change 
Let's go back to the changing of the water into wine. You see, what John is trying to do through the writing of this gospel, he's not trying to change the people at the time of the story because the gospel is not written until long afterwards. So what he's trying to do is change the minds and the hearts of people that follow after him and after these situations. So, the meaning of the changing of the water and the wine is, and we're getting a little bit ahead of the story, but if you go to uh, chapter 3, verse 16, I believe it is, Chapter 3, verse 16. It's on page 21. About a third of the way down on the right side. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish but might have eternal life. And in one of the other Gospels it says, uh, and might have abundant life rather than just eternal life. Mark that because that is probably the most important statement in this Gospel, if not the whole New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him might not perish. And of course, we're talking about spiritual life here. But have eternal life. Alright. Now, going back to the changing of the water into wine. The water represents the life that the Jewish people had been leading up to this point in time. But God wanted them to see that through Christ, they would then be able to obtain life that was far greater. And that was signified by the wine. So you might say water represented natural, earthly life, but the wine represents spiritual life or eternal life. And this is the change, one of the changes that Jesus is making. Does that make sense? You, because you wonder, well, this is a simple little story. Yeah, Jesus does uh, quite a great miracle here, but ho-hum, so what? Well, if you think about it, and you put it together with this statement about Jesus coming to earth to make these changes to get people back on track 
And if they do, they will then experience eternal life. And you're going to be seeing this as we go along. So I would like to have you think about that as you read these uh, various stories. The cleansing of the temple, again, it is not so much the selling of the animals and the changing of Roman coinage into temple money. It is the fact that people were putting more emphasis, more importance on the physical, the earthly presence and the earthly gifts rather than bringing their mind and their heart to God in worship. Any questions so far? Let's go on to the Nicodemus story. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, one of the temple rulers. He comes to Jesus at night. Now, why would anybody put that in there? What's that? Well, both, you might say. He was probably uh, very reluctant to have any of his colleagues see him. That's true. So he comes at night. But in John's Gospel, light and darkness have a deeper meaning than what we normally think about them. Okay. Darkness in this case, or at night, comes from either evil, or in this case, probably not evil, but a lack of belief. Okay. A lack of understanding and belief. But Nicodemus is curious. And he recognizes, because of his statement here, that um, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs, signs again, um, unless he's from God. Okay. So he recognizes that Jesus is somebody a little different, and he wants to find out about him. But this is true if we are looking at the Jewish people in general or mankind in general. Curiosity is only satisfied when you come and you explore what it's all about. And then you realize where you should be. Jesus answers and said to him, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a person once grown be born again? Surely he cannot re-enter his mother's womb and be born again, can he? And of course, Jesus Jesus said, I say to you, 
No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born from above, for the wind blows where it wills, and you can hear the sound it makes, but you will not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said, How can this happen? And Jesus said, You are a teacher of Israel, and you do not understand this. Amen, amen, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But you people do not accept our testimony. Now, this we business, that sounds a little strange, doesn't it? Again, this is John's followers who are writing this gospel. Remember, this is the end of the first century. There is a lot of tension going on between Christians and the Jews. As of the as of 70 AD, the temple now has been destroyed. And there is a definite separation between Christianity and Judaism. But they are still living together to a point. They, the Christians have now been uh, totally ostracized and put out of the temple. So there is a, a definite uh, distinction now, a definite split between Christianity and Judaism. But Jesus is still trying to get these people to see the light. And he's opening the door wherever he can. That's what this is really all about here. Nicodemus represents the Jewish people who are curious, haven't totally written off Christianity, but are still looking for proof, looking for ways to accept what they have to offer, what Christianity has to offer. And so you have this tension between the Christians and the Jews, and Jesus is talking about being born again. What does that mean? It doesn't mean, doesn't mean that, uh, as Nicodemus is implying here, that a person re-enter the mother's womb and all of that. You know, that's nonsense. And, of course, I think we all recognize that and have put that aside. What it really means is a change of heart and mind, of accepting what they already know. Christ and his, and his apostles have now been preaching all of what Christ taught before he died and rose again and ascended into heaven. And Christianity has now developed some time. Uh, Paul's letters have been written. Uh, the other gospels have been written. 
but you still have a number of people who have not come across and fully accepted that. But Nicodemus is, again, not just a single person, but is representing all of Judaism in this writing. And what they're really talking about here is a change of heart of accepting the teachings of Christ. Do we have any any questions out there? Anyone have a question? The sentence, uh, the uh, 50, 50, is that referring, is that saying that Christ must rise from the dead? Or does it have a different meaning? No, you said verse 15. What chapter are you talking about? I'm sorry. Page 21. Yeah. So that everyone who believes in him may have <laughs> eternal life? No. That's 15. No, I'm sorry. But you have to go. You have to go back before that in order to to, to make a little sense of which. No one who has gone up to heaven except the one who has come down from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Okay, and he was. He was lifted up on the cross. That's what I was saying. It's referring to his death and resurrection. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. You know, when John the Baptist was baptizing, yes. and he said, uh, I baptize you with the water and the spirit. No, he just says water. Well, water, but. John refers to Jesus, Jesus will baptize with water and the spirit. Yes. Yes, yes. And in this case, the spirit meaning that he has to be baptized not only with his body, but with his mind and his heart as well. Yes, yeah. If you're baptized and, well, let me give you an example. I know somebody that went through the whole RCIA program simply because he was marrying a Catholic girl, and he wanted to follow along. He could have cared less about Catholicism and all of its teachings. He went through the formality. Well, you know, that's not going to work. Yeah, that's not going to work. You can't just go through the formality. It's the same as going to church with an empty mind and heart because you're thinking about the the mall or the golf course or, you know, the football game? Yes, sir. In other words, it seems that the teaching of preaching of within your heart, you feel the 
Yes. Amen. Yes, by all means, you put it very nicely. Uh, the Jewish faith was all an external thing. They do not have, and today, majority of Jewish people have no personal relationship or understanding of Christ or God. In other words, God is up there. They know that. There, there's reverence. But as far as God having any interest in them personally, that's not part of their makeup. It is all external. And that is what Jesus is trying to change. Not only at that time, but down through the ages. And that is something that even we Catholics and Christians in general have to totally examine themselves on a regular basis. Am I just going through the motions or am I truly living the Christian Catholic life and show it by my actions? What about prayer? All of this understanding of the gospel is not going to do you any good unless you take it into prayer. Because prayer is where you take the knowledge that you have made or received and it gets from your mind down to your heart. And you develop a relationship with God through prayer. And I don't mean just recitation, recitation of, you know, the Our Father, Hail Mary, and all of the other uh, what I call canned prayers, prayers written by someone else. But a dialogue between you and God. That is what our faith is all about. And unless you put it into action through your mind and your heart, the rest is null and void. Okay? It is worthless. Um, and that's so unfortunate that that isn't brought out in homilies and other teachings. Okay? Because that's really where the importance really is. Okay. Let us go on a little bit here to uh, page 22. The final witness of the Baptist. Jesus went into the region of Judea where he spent some time with them baptizing. Now, Jesus did not do any baptizing. It was only the apostles. John was also baptizing in Ana, uh, near Salem. Because there was an abundance of water there, 
and people came to be baptized. For John had not yet been imprisoned. Now a dispute arose between the disciples of John and a Jew about ceremonial washings. In this case, the Jew is Christ himself. Okay. So they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one, and of course now these are John's disciples coming to him and saying, Rabbi, the one who is with you across the Jordan to whom you testified here uh, is baptizing and everyone is coming to him. John answered and said, no one can receive anything except what has been given him from above or from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said that I am not the Messiah, but that I was sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The best man who stands and listens to him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made complete and he must increase and I must decrease. This is John the Baptist's last witness and this is the last you will hear uh, about John the Baptist in this uh, gospel except for a comment that Jesus makes later on. The one who comes from above is above all. And the one who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of earthly things. But the one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. But no one accepts his testimony, which is sort of a repeat of what came out of the prologue. Remember, um, the prologue says, and his own did not accept him. For the one whom God sent speaks the words of God. He does not uh, ration his gift of the Spirit. The Father loves the Son and has given everything over to him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. And then, of course, we go back to this statement again, verse 16. And this is the point that this whole gospel is trying to make. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but have life, and have, as it says in one of the other Gospels, and have it abundantly. And that goes back to why Jesus would change the six stone water jars into wine, to show the abundance of God's love. This is... (coughs) This is a metaphor, you might say. The wine, the abundance of wine is um, to show the abundance of God's love. And we are going to have similar examples of this in uh, 
one other major place, particularly in verse in uh, chapter six. Okay. <clears throat> now, let me give you a little way of looking at what we've talked about this morning. How many of you, while you're at home or wherever, reading all of this in preparation for this class, was concerned about all the detail and all the words? Uh, did any of you get a little bit of, see, this is a little bit much, you know, for us to think about and be under be concerned and difficult for me to understand and so forth and so on. Any have that problem? Well, I'm glad a few of you are admitting it because I'm sure that you all had some of that. You have a question? I always see so much of it I thought was written in parables. You know, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. But there is a little, little trick, you might say, in learning how to absorb this. You don't want to absorb every word. What you want to do is to take each chapter as you come to it and take the highlights The highlight here. And write it down on a piece of paper. And you'll see that in chapter 2, let's say, you have the marriage feast of Cana, and you have the story of the cleansing of the temple. Those are the only two major subjects in chapter 2. Now, if you understand the basis or the basic ideas and concept that are put there, at least in the words, and you meditate a little bit on that, gradually it will begin to make sense. You don't have to understand and put together every word, but look at it as in chapter 2, just two major points that God is making. The changing of the water into wine, the abundance, and what does that mean? The changing of the life that the Jewish people were leading, which was the the natural life, but without any real spiritual substance to it, into a life of spirituality, a life that, sure, you still need the water, but in order to turn that into eternal life, you need the wine. And even whenever of you stop and think or question, why does the priest at the Mass, at the concert, just before the consecration, while the preparation of the gifts, put a little drop of water into the chalice with the wine? Have you ever thought about that? All right. The water represents Jesus' humanity. The wine represents his divinity. Simple as that. 
that make sense? Because when they are both consecrated into the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ still had human properties. The blood of Christ still looked red, was liquid, etc. It still had its human properties, but it became the blood of the divine God being offered to the Father. So, the water represents Jesus' humanity. The the blood represents his divinity. In the story of Jesus changing the water into wine, what he's doing is forecasting the whole idea of changing Christianity and its basic meaning from an earthly level to a spiritual level. Yeah. Yeah, but most people don't. Yeah, but most people don't hear that, and therefore most people don't know that. You're right. No, I thought it had something to do with the crucifixion, with his blood, and then the spear with the water, the last drop of water coming out of him. No. 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 No, it is the idea of humanity. Uh, Well, there is a connection there. I mean, the same meaning would apply. Eleanor just said, doesn't the same thing exist uh, on the cross where the spear is thrust through Christ's side and into his heart and water and blood come out? Yes, it's the same thing. Uh, And the two are sort of linked together. Yeah. Yes. Well, I I second that because way way back when somebody probably grammar school, probably the good nuns told me that story. <laughs> so I had the same thought. Well, yes, there is a definite connection. You know, the water, uh, because before the consecration, those are earthly elements, water and wine. All right. It isn't until after the consecration that it is the true blood of Christ, which again still is part earth and part divine. Okay. I want to ask you about this. On verse uh, 32, it says, Then Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Well, any sin is disobeying. Remember, any time you uh, do something against the will of God as it is intended for you is wrong. Would not believing be disobeying? Not believing is one thing. Sure, if you do it, if you do it intentionally. Yeah, that's right. And of course, that is one of the greatest of sins. Is if you know something to be true and you just make up your mind you're not going to accept that or believe it, then that is one of the greatest of sins. Well, I won't get into that. Yeah. Yeah. What about questioning? Questioning Questioning or doubt is not wrong unless you leave it that way. Yeah. 
you know, it's, it's normal to question. It's normal to doubt. But if you just leave it that way and let it fester, that's wrong. Yeah. God gave us, you know, not only reasons, but resources to uh, resolve our doubts and our questions. Yes? Now, uh, I was taught not only what you just said about the rights humanity being represented by uh, the water being put into the line, but also that our humanity That's right, yes. Yeah. When when the priest lifts the cup up and offers the bread and the wine to the Father at the end of the Eucharistic prayer, it represents all of us who have given ourselves into that sacrifice. And for those who are still thinking about the mall or the football game or whatever, you're being left out. So don't get left out. When you are at Mass, put yourself into it. And as I've said many times before, many of you have all heard, I'm sure, this. Uh, somebody say, well, I don't go to Mass because I don't get anything out of it. Well, that's, of course, the total wrong attitude. You don't go there to get something out of it. You go there to give your mind and your heart in love to God. And in return... He gives you love. And so, if you put yourself into the situation and become part of it and lift yourself up with the consecrated bread and wine to the Father, then you will receive far more in abundance. The whole idea of the wine being changed into, I mean, the water being changed into wine in such large quantities in this chapter is to signify the abundance of God's love being given to mankind. And you'll see the same thing in chapter 6 in a different way. Okay, And then we'll hook them together at that point in time. Okay. <coughs> Pardon me. Yes. Yes, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, it talks about the, un, the unforgivable sin. Okay? What that really is referring to is the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is was given to us in Pentecost Sunday to take the whole idea of Christ's teachings and help us personally put that into action through our lives and become um, one of God's witnesses, uh, followers, etc. Okay? But if we deny the fact that the Holy Spirit cannot help us or we don't want the Holy Spirit to help us I've heard people say, and, and 
priest will tell you this quite often, that people will say, well, I don't go to confession because I don't believe God could ever uh, forgive the things that I've done. (coughs) I'm sort of paraphrasing something, you know. But they feel that they have committed such great horrible sins um, that God could never forgive them. Well, what they're doing is they're putting a roadblock there in their mind and heart. And that creates the breach that Jesus is talking about in chapter 3 of the verse of the Gospel of Mark. Okay, the unforgivable sins because it can't be forgiven until you remove that block of disbelief. Does that make sense? I can tell it doesn't in your mind. What you've done is you've put, you know, I don't mean you personally, but anyone that feels this way, that God can't forgive or won't forgive, is putting a roadblock, and that's true. He's not going to forgive something where you've put a roadblock and you won't accept it. So what you've got to do is remove the, the disbelief before he will forgive. It's not that he won't forgive. It's that there is a, a block there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good a, a good point. The prodigal son is one. For example, the the father couldn't forgive the son if the son never came back. So, if you don't remove the obstacle that is there, you can't be forgiven. But it's not that he won't forgive. It means that you've got to do your part first. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven because on the cross, Christ said, if I recall correctly, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So he was willing to forgive the Romans and all those who crucified him. Only if they ask for forgiveness. Yes. They have to ask. They have to ask. And of course, they have to ask with the true understanding and the desire to be forgiven. Right. You've got to do your part. It's always a, you know, a two-way thing here. Yes? Yes. 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 A good point. Uh, Mary's statement to Jesus, or actually to the servants, is do whatever he tells you. But if you think about it, at the time of, if you go back to the baptism of Jesus, not so much in this gospel, but in the others, where the Father, as Jesus comes up out of the water after being baptized by John the Baptist, Uh, The father's voice says, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. 
And if you hook that together with Mary's statement to the servants, do whatever he tells you, you've got quite a command there. This is my beloved son. Do whatever he tells you. What more could you ask for than the father and the mother of Christ, you know, encouraging you, not demanding, but encouraging you to follow Christ? Yes, she's one of the greatest witnesses uh, to Christ herself. John the Baptist is pointed out as being one of the greatest witnesses also uh, to Christ. But then John fades out of the gospel here and Christ picks up from there. Are you beginning to get the point now what is being, what is going on here? This is not a biography of Christ. This is not a chronological story of any kind. It is isolated incidents. John uses only seven miracles. Even though he says at the end there are a lot more miracles that Jesus did, but they couldn't be put into this book because uh, it would become unwieldy. Okay, I'm using my own words. So, what he's doing here is trying to get people to see who Jesus is, God, why he came to earth to save mankind, but out of love, not in a demanding way or a commanding way, but out of love. And it is through the changes that he is making to the culture and the idea of people at the time he lived and immediately after, which had gotten way off of track of God's plan of salvation. And he's trying to make these changes not only to simplify the methods of expressing love, but to make them a little more sincere and understandable. Remember, the Jewish people had gotten so far (laughs) off of the track with their 613 uh, laws belonging to or stemming from the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law and all of their strange understanding of that, all of which had to do with the outward appearance rather than the inward conduct, Jesus is trying now to get them back on the track by saying it is your mind and your heart that is far more important uh, in giving that to God. Uh, And how do you give it? Well, then you give it to him through your actions. But it's got to start with mind and heart. Otherwise, it's of no value. So, this whole book is going to show you such a different way of looking at Christ. Or at least I hope it will. Any other questions? Yes. 
Jewish people today, do they reject Jesus? Yes. Okay, so in 36, here it says, everyone who has faith in the Son has eternal life, but no one who rejects him will ever share in that life, and God will be angry with him forever. So that means that the Jews are rejected by God if they don't believe in Christ. Right. Is that right? That's right. But the door is still open. Always. The door is still open for them to come into. But they would have to start changing their ways and believing in Christianity. You're right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's, uh, you know, that's frightening. Yes. That's frightening. There's still a lot of Jewish people in the world. Well, yes. And I'm not saying that the Jewish people are not good people. It is that they are misled. That's the same as the uh, fulfilling an obligation. Yes, Arita asks a question here. She said that years ago somebody told her that it was a sin not to go to church on Sunday. Is that true then? And is it true today? And the answer is yes. But you've got to understand why. First of all, it comes from the Ten Commandments. Third commandment is, uh, remember, or fourth, I guess it is, remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. All right? And we will get into this a little later uh, in one of the chapters, I think it's next week, uh, where Jesus talks about the Sabbath and the importance of the Sabbath. And he ends up by saying the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the meaning of that is that the Sabbath was created for people to rest because if they worked seven days a week, week after week, they wouldn't be good for much of anything. I remember during the war, I had a job where this was uh, the, well, the end of the Korean War and part of the Vietnamese War where I had to work seven days a week. And, oh, you know, in the beginning I was thinking, oh, this is great because I'm getting time and a half or something, whatever it was at the time. Uh, after a while I could have cared less, you know, because I was so tired I, I didn't have time to even spend the money that I was making. The point is that God recognized this uh, need for a day of rest for the human body. And the best way of doing that would be to cease from manual labor and spend some time thanking God for the many good things that he has given us. The church has deemed that it is the way to recognize that is to attend Mass on Sunday. And that has been a law for hundreds of years. And we are obligated to go to Mass on Sunday. To deliberately not do that for a reason other than serious illness or, uh, you know, like I can't give you any other reasons because there could be many, uh, is wrong. 
Now, whether it be a, you know, a great mortal sin or a minor little sin, it depends on a lot of factors and individual situations. Uh, but it's wrong because the whole idea of Sunday has been set apart from the day of creation, you might say, and that's where it comes from. On the seventh day, God rested, and it was taken from that that he wanted us to cease from manual labor and worship him in some special way. Oh, anyways, but like I said, I take the Bible serious, but that doesn't mean we can't have some fun enjoying. All right, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for this time together. Help us to further understand and really accept the whole idea of your coming to earth for our benefit, our personal benefit. And the work that John did in putting the gospel together to show how and why. So open our minds and our hearts that we might truly learn to thank you through the actions that we display and the speech that we give and all of the things that we do. Help us then to reflect your love in our actions. So we thank you for this time together. And we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.